Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, I want to start today with a little bit of a celebration. And it, this might be kind of sound like I'm crazy to call this a celebration, but a what I consider a really important local business has just recently announced their intention to close here in a couple of weeks or in less in about a week here in Denver. The business is called Awake and they it is owned by friends of ours, Billy and Christy Wynn, and they are coffee shop by morning, midday, and then alcohol-free bar slash curated bottle shop by afternoon and evening. With entertainment. Live music, lots of live music. They've really been um, supportive of and been supported by the LGBTQ community, among other communities, lots of other, you know, anyone who's alcohol-free, really. Um, But it's really been a huge success story. Awake has been around for a couple of years, And the reason I'm calling it a celebration, I'm sad, like everyone is, that they are at least for now closing. Their announcement, and I've been in contact with Billy, their plan is to try to, you know, launch a phase two, maybe find a location that's a little better suited for the clientele, Um, find maybe entrepreneurs or investors who share their vision and want to grow this thing. So it's not over. That's one of the reasons that the celebration, this is Mm -hmm. just phase one is winding down and hopefully there'll be a phase two. And if anyone can pull it off, it's, it's Billy and Christy. So I, I, I think there might be, but I think this could easily be looked at as a negative because this thing, this alcohol free bar, I mean, you could go in and order an alcohol free gin and tonic. You could order one of 120 alcohol free beers. I mean, just crazy selection. And maybe it isn't 120, but it's a lot. It's, it's something a lot. like it's that. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, but just crazy selection and, like you said, live music, wonderful atmosphere. Good food. All these, yeah, good food, all these great things. Um, but rather than be sad about the fact that Phase 1 is closing, I think we have to be realistic about this. This is the first thing of its kind in Denver, probably the first half dozen or dozen things of its kind nationwide I mean, in bigger cities, there there are alcohol-free bars that are trying this, but there's not a lot of them, and I don't know what, su- what success they're having. But Billy and Christy and Awake have, you know, taken giant steps forward for the alcohol-free community, the sober community, whether it's people that are in recovery or people like me that consider themselves recovered from alcoholism, or it's people that just don't understand why anyone would drink in the first place and want to be able to socialize in a place that's not completely alcohol-centric. Whatever the reason is you're alcohol-free, if you're alcohol-free, Awake has done a huge service for not only our local community, but I would argue our country and and maybe even beyond because they're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. They're true pioneers. And I'm just so proud to call them friends and, you know, <clears throat> the fact is, we don't live particularly close to Awake. We have kids. Um, we have active lives. We don't have a ton of disposable income. It turns out, when you are 
serving really high-end beverages, whether there's alcohol in them or not. They're pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, I'll be the first to admit that we weren't like every Friday. We were there for happy hour. We did not frequent the awake to the to the degree that um, maybe I wish we could have. I don't feel a lot of guilt around it either. It's just not our scene. We don't go out to bars right. in our late 40s, early 50s with with teenage boys. So um, I, I just I, I just want to emphasize that even though it's closing and I know our, our audience is nationwide, but this isn't just a Denver thing. This is big for the alcohol-free community that they tried this, that they invested their their time, their their love for uh, this movement, and um, you know a significant amount of, of money to give this a go. And it's anything but a failure. I mean, I know it's cliche, but Rome wasn't built in a day. And um, whether Awake Phase Two is a great success, as I hope it is, or something else rises from these ashes. Um, and takes the lessons and moves the ball forward even further. Um, it's just, it's. I think it's something to celebrate that a place like this um, made a run like they did. So I'm pretty excited. Had you, you had had coffee there. You you never yeah, had like an alcohol-free uh, drink, did you? I have never had an alcohol-free, like a mocktail or anything. I was usually just there during the day. Yeah. One time you and I went and it was just during... Um, the renovation stages and they were just doing like carry out or maybe it was cause it was COVID. Yeah. Um, and then another time a friend and I went and grabbed coffee there cause we were up in the neighborhood. Um, yeah. Well, so I, just I, morning. I had a variety of alcohol free beers. Like I said, I wasn't there every week or anything, but over the couple of years, um, mm-hmm. had a variety of alcohol free beers there and it was great. Great. So, Billy and Christy, uh, just can't thank you enough for what you've done for our community and our movement. So today, Sherry, I want to talk about the uh, brain chemistry, the ways alcohol impacts our brain chemistry. And this is for you and I, this is not a new topic. This is something that we've discussed. We discuss it with people all the time. But, But what's really cool about brain chemistry is that it really is the final frontier of human biology. I mean, nobody's wondering how the knee joint really works anymore. Like, we've pretty much covered all that. We covered that probably, what, 150 years ago or something. I don't know. I don't know when science did their, you know, final when, yeah. understanding of things. But, you know, I'm there's sure not it was a lot of... probably less than 150 years ago. I mean... Yeah. You get to know. the dentist to, you know, get a bunch of things done back then. 150 yeah. years ago. They were called a dentist. Dentist to carry your knee joint? Well, they were also like usually the doctor and they just didn't use Novocaine and just pulled your tooth out. You do watch all those British uh, medical shows from the like. Yeah, I think before America existed. Yes, I mean, I know that there are reasons why some things were thought of but not perfected. But the point is. It's, yeah. There's not a lot of, there's not a mystery on, right. you know, what cartilage Human is in your fingers. Like, yes. we, get, we get all that. But the brain, we still don't understand the brain. So it's fun to be involved in a thing, you know, addiction, that where we're still learning how the brain works and how addiction works within the brain. So a couple of the things that we're going to talk about, the first couple are things that you and I 
are fairly well versed in and we've known about for years and we've talked about with people for years. But then a couple of the things we're going to talk about are kind of new, somewhat new to us, but really kind of somewhat new to science too. So I think it's pretty exciting. Let's start with neurotransmitters. Dopamine, serotonin, GABA, endorphins, these are all chemicals in our brains that help us. They're all related to pleasure. And they're all related to pleasure in different ways. And I have written down the different ways that they're related to pleasure. Like, Like some of these chemicals are for reward after you've had pleasure. Some of them are more anticipatory. The chemical gets released with the thought of the re- the thing coming that's pleasurable. But I don't think that's important. I, you know why I don't think it's important? Because you forgot your notes and you just don't want to guess. Well, no, I just can't remember it and keep it straight. And so I thought you said you had it written down. I have it written down somewhere. Oh. I'm just, the point I'm trying to make is if you know I like in our book we wrote about these things. If, oh, so you have to buy our... Is this a plug to buy the yes, book? A shameless plug to buy the book. This is just a 10-minute plug to buy the book. No, the point is, if if I can't... You know, if, if like this is what I do, and I'm really into it, and I can't keep straight which one... Which of the neurotransmitters is about reward, and which one is about anticipatory gratification, and which one is about just feeling good in general. If I can't keep that straight, it's probably not important. I guess. That's that's my way of looking at it. It's not important which one does which one. The point is, all four of these neurotransmitters are impacted by alcohol and impacted by alcohol addiction. And so which one does which doesn't matter. I'm not trying to fly the airplane. I don't need to know, you know, yes. which switch to throw this to get the landing gear to come down. I just need to know that the landing gear will come down if the pilot yeah. asks it to, right? Yeah, so you're just promoting the fact that this is not a scientific... Um, well, podcast. I just think you can get really into the weeds on this stuff and you can get deep enough that you're like, maybe too far. Maybe you didn't need to know that. I mean, hey, if you want to know what GABA is, go for it. Go go get him, Tiger. I'm all about it. But I don't think it's super important. The point is that ad- addictions hijack our neurotransmitters. And in the case of alcohol, alcohol impacts all four of dopamine, serotonin, GABA, and endorphins. Um... And when we say hijacks, what what we mean is when, you know, our brain, this is important, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on too, but our brain is constantly trying to reach equilibrium, a state of uh, homeostasis, you know, kind of a baseline normal. And when we do things that are pleasurable, we get these little jolts of these neurotransmitters, the one that's most popularly discussed out there in the big bad world is dopamine. We get these little jolts of, let, let's let's call them dopamine for the sake of this discussion. And the result is we feel pleasure from that. And um, because our brain is constantly trying to reach equilibrium, if we get the neurotransmitter spurts from drinking alcohol, but we also get it from a beautiful sunrise and we also get it from our favorite sports team winning we also get it from having sex we also get it from chocolate we also get it from our kids getting a good grade in school if we get the pleasure chemicals from all these different things but we drink heavily and consistently 
then our brain starts to say, this guy is getting too much of these pleasure chemicals. I'm trying to be at equilibrium. I'm not trying to be all on the high end of the happy spectrum all the time. I'm trying to be baseline. And so our brain will start to reserve those neurotransmitters for only when we drink alcohol. So basically, the release of the pleasure chemicals gets reserved for alcohol only. That's what we mean when we say that the addiction hijacks the pleasure chemicals. Is this all fitting with your understanding of how this stuff works? Does this make sense to you? Um, yes. I have always been curious, though, but I'm not going to ask. Are you going to ask which one I, of these four does which? No, I'm not going to ask any more detail, because if I wanted to find out, I guess I'll just go to the internet. But I've always been curious how they know which, how the dopamine and the brain, like, know which one to take away from. Like, why can't it choose the the use of an intoxicant? And it's like, nope, you get no pleasure from that, but you get pleasure from hanging out with your friends. Like, oh. I want to know how well, that works. But, but that's a lot into the weeds, and that's really kind of understanding. But And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol, but it's whatever hits your... It's your brain, like it could be I, gaming or gambling or sex or... I think it's the consistency of use that does it. You're right. Anything can create an addiction, literally anything that you get pleasure from um, and that you can't seem to uh, control the use of on your own, That that's what addiction is, right? So I think it's just the consistency. I think if you drink, you know, once a month, you... Your brain not is not going to reserve dopamine for only when you drink because you're not drinking off enough for it to make that association. But when we do make that association, um, because we drink heavily or we drink consistently, then that's that's how addiction happens. Um, and like you said, like I said, chocolate earlier, right? There are lots of people that are literally addicted to chocolate. Well, I'm not. I don't eat chocolate all that often, although I've been eating a lot of chocolate ice cream lately, so I should probably be careful about that. <laughs> With your addictive personality, I think. <laughs> With my sure. addictive personality. But, um, yeah, that, you know, the idea of uh, variety is really important if we want to avoid, avoid addiction, as this brain chemistry okay. lesson tells us. But so, whatever your addiction is, and, you know, obviously we're talking about alcohol... Um, which impacts all four of these neurotransmitters, uh, they start to be reserved and released only when we're drinking. And then, so that's why a lot of people, we talk about how alcohol is self-medicating. You feel really bad. You get depressed, like, like clinical depression, like bad stuff and anxiety. Same thing, really, really bad anxiety. And nothing seems to make that feel better except when you drink. It's because, boom, there, you just got a burst of your pleasure chemicals when you drink. And if you're in a bad enough spot, it doesn't necessarily feel like pleasure, but it will feel like relief. But it's very temporary because you get that bolt or jolt of pleasure chemicals. But then, again, the brain's trying to reach equilibrium. So it, it wants to take you back down the other direction and um, we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna talk about the equilibrium in a minute here because there's a really good book that's about a year old that I want to talk about. But um, so when the 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 important point of this neurotransmitter talk is that it can be fixed. Um, I want to give a tip of the cap 
to our good friend Kelly Miller, who um, she is a nutritionist. She specializes in addiction nutrition. In fact, her website is theaddictionnutritionist.com. She was on the fourth episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. So if you scroll way, way back in the Wayback Machine, it was before you were even on the podcast, Sherry. Yes. Um, it's still one of the best episodes and one of the most listened to episodes we've ever had because she really was laying down some truth on me and, and my then podcast partner, Jason, that we'd never heard before about the importance of nutrition to repair these dysfunctional neurotransmitters. And so I strongly encourage anyone who hasn't listened to episode four, go back and listen to that. Whether you are the alcoholic, the alcoholic in sobriety, or you're the spouse, there's huge lessons about how we really can help move our recovery forward. And uh, there are certain things that we can eat that help to cure us and certain things that we can eat that make our addiction, our alcohol addiction flourish. Sugar being at the top of that list. Sugar and alcohol follow the same neural pathways. So, you know, the old school AA um, philosophy was if you're having a craving for alcohol, go eat a Dairy Queen Blizzard or go eat a donut. Eat something sugary. It'll take away the craving. And it does. It curbs that craving, but it guarantees that the craving will come come back again because it, again, it sugar and alcohol um, react very similarly in the brain. So it's like keeping an alcohol addiction alive even when you aren't drinking. And then, not too terribly long ago, her mentor, um, who she studied with and under, Christina Veselak, we had her on the podcast. Yeah, we sure so did. then there's some there's some different pieces of evidence that prove this that she has used, like for example, in prisons. Um, and just how that is helping, like, the better nutrition is helping the prisoners not have this anger and um, less fights and those sort of things. So just a different different take on things, um, but more evidence to prove. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So this, this neurotransmitter function, it can return to near normal. I always say near normal because I think it's important for us to understand that one of the the, what, it's really a cool aspect of how the brain works. It's not particularly helpful if your goal is to be sober for a while so you can reset your brain and start drinking again. I got bad news for you. That does It doesn't work that way. Our brain has like a library catalog system. And yes, we can get our neurotransmitters back to firing when we see a beautiful sunset or we're at our kid's basketball game and, and they hit a three-pointer or you know, any of the other things in life that should bring pleasure, a really good meal, a nice conversation with a friend, we can start to get those jolts of the pleasure neurotransmitters again. Um, But our brain will always remember what to do with alcohol. So you can be sober for years, even decades, and then say, you know what, I've decided that I'm fixed, I'm cured. I can go back to moderate drinking again, I'm going to try again. And your brain will go into its little library catalog, card catalog, and be like, let's see, alcohol just entered our system. What do we do with alcohol? Oh, I know. And you revert right back to the state that you were in, in full addiction, um, that you worked so hard to beat. There's literally hundreds of examples of this, you know, in the popular press, but one that's really well known, the one that I think the most about is Robin Williams. He was sober for 20 years. 
and then decided he could drink, decided he'd beat it. And as he, he describes in an interview with David Letterman, he was about two or three days into drinking again, and he was in worse shape than he had been 20 years prior. So our brains remember whether we can access that memory in a conscious level or it's tucked away in the 90% of our brain that we don't have any access to, um, our brains remember. So to get that neurotransmitter action back on track, we need time. In, in most cases, certainly in my case, but the one-year mark is, is kind of mentioned in the recovery community in lots and lots of places as being a year to a year and a half is when the neurotransmitters start uh, working properly again, which I know that's a scary time frame for a lot of people. When you first heard or learned or figured out that some of this stuff was going to take a year, was that terrifying to you, Sherry? I think it was frustrating, but I don't know if terrifying because just like when you have had a baby, they say it took nine months to create a body that grew a human body mm, person. Yeah. So it's not going to come off right away. So I kind of was like, it is going to take some time. Also, because you had had several attempts at sobriety that were six or nine months, and I saw there wasn't change, I guess that wasn't, because we were a little bit already further in, and I kind of realized that's probably logical. Yeah. I think, though, it could be very frustrating for the alcoholic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Terrifying, even. And, you know, and also, but I, I, it's hard to remember those days. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure like in the six months percent of sobriety, I was like, why aren't you better? Why aren't you feeling better? Yeah. You know, that would have, I would have, you know, probably been a little annoyed. When I was super naive, I definitely thought there, I quit drinking. Everything should be better. I have a little bit of a headache today and I'm a little groggy, but tomorrow I'll be fine. Like literally thought that's all it took. Had no idea about this brain chemistry stuff. So Mm -hmm. yeah, a year can be daunting. Um, but the only other thing besides having that patience and waiting out that year plus is the recovery nutrition plan that, like I said, that Kelly is a great resource for. The addictionnutritionist.com. Recommend you check that out. She's got lots of different resources. Um, one other thing I want to say about this neurotransmitter stuff relapse is bad. There's a general you know, sentiment in the recovery community that relapse is part of recovery. And I get it. I don't not get that. I relapsed for happens. 10 years. It happens. But if you think of your brain like, kind of like a, I don't know. I don't know if a computer is the right way to say it. That it, This isn't something you can just think or will yourself out of. If you're trying to retrain your brain. Okay, think of it as like you're trying to train an animal to sit. You're trying to train a dog to sit. And you reward the dog every time they sit properly. But if you accidentally reward the dog when they don't sit, you're fucking up the training. And the dog's going to think he gets a treat whether he's sitting or not sitting when you tell him to sit. That's what relapse is. If you're trying to train your brain to fire neurotransmitters for things other than alcohol, and then every, I don't know, two months you have a little slip and you drink for a day or maybe you drink for two days or whatever, you're, you're confusing your brain and it can't heal. So, yes, relapse is part of recovery to an extent. I don't recommend it by any means. Another thing that's scary about relapse besides the specific thing we're talking about is the more times you slip, the easier it becomes to slip. You go, oh, well, I did it a couple weeks ago and I got right back on the horse. I'll just have a night of drinking and I'll get back on the horse tomorrow. No big deal. 
it starts to become easy. It's and then, kind of acceptable. Yeah, and, and when I, you make it acceptable, then then I'm, then sticking to sobriety becomes really hard. And then from the spouse side of things or the partner side of things that's looking for the sobriety, then there that leads to a lot of mistrust, distrust. 100%. Um, unreliability, unaccountability, unpredictability. So it just damages the relationship further. Yeah. Because I see that you want sobriety, but you, oh, relapse is part of recovery. Well, fuck that. It's not. That's how I would look at it. It's like, you know. Well, it, it it's not because it hurts the relationship. And it hurts your brain. But it also, brain. yeah, it makes training your brain really, Especially because really if it goes right back to where you were. Yeah. You know, that card catalog is like, oh, this is how you feel. So hopefully... So hopefully it's not a bad incident. Hopefully having this knowledge that, um, you know, relapse is... It's not as innocent as we think it is. Uh, hopefully that'll provide incentive to when you're... You know, if, if you're struggling, if you're really struggling, to stay out of uh, stay out of the booze because it's more than just a one-night slip and then I'll go back and get, get back on my program. Also, a lot of the things that we learned from Kelly was one of the things in early days of sobriety and for that first year or so besides the nutrition piece of um of it is part of that nutrition piece is don't let your blood sugar get low yeah because that's when slips are happening so it's not like you go oh i can't have my blood sugar low so i'm gonna go eat a blizzard but you have something like nuts or a protein make sure you're staying hydrated and yeah because because that's a blizzard would make your blood sugar go low and i know that's counterintuitive but it's again this equilibrium thing Right. A blizzard makes your blood sugar spike, but then your brain or your body releases, well, your brain tells your body to release lots of insulin, too much insulin, and that's when your blood sugar yeah. dips. And then that's just that unbalance that yeah. makes the craving worse the next time. So, um, like making sure you have snacks, making sure you're staying hydrated. Yeah. Kind of uh, work uh, through and try to figure out something to work through those um, struggling times, like the witching hour. Intermittent, intermittent fasting is a really popular health trend right now, but I've actually spoken to Kelly directly about this, and she strongly recommends against intermittent fasting in the first several years of sobriety mm-hmm. because that blood sugar regulation is so important. And if you're going you know, 18 hours or 16 hours or whatever it is without eating, um, you it, it, unless your body is really nutritionally balanced, it's going to cause uh, blood sugar fluctuations, which lead to relapse. Right. So, And this is also not just for alcohol addiction. I mean, this can be used for a variety of addictions. Absolutely. It's just that brain balancing, brain repairing. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you've transferred your addiction to something else, yeah, this can help too. Which is very common. The next piece of brain chemistry that we want to talk about is the power of the subconscious mind. These are concepts that we learned from best-selling author Annie Grace. Uh, her book, This Naked Mind, it has been for years really the Amazon bestseller in the addiction recovery category, or at least alcohol addiction recovery category. And um, Annie is just, she's phenomenal. Um, she talks a lot about, you know, that that huge chunk of our brain, the majority of our brain that we can't access on a conscious level. This is all about patterns and habits and how important it is when we quit doing a bad habit like alcohol 
you can't just leave that. You have to replace the bad habit with something good. So we have to lay good things over the top of bad. Um, in in my case, and I'm not alone, but but certainly this is something that we talk a lot in, about in our shout sobriety program. In my case, the witching hour, the the six o'clock every evening when. As a drinker, I would pour my first drink of the day. When that time would come around in early sobriety, I needed to not just sit there and think about how much it sucked that I wasn't drinking. I needed to replace that drinking habit, that daily tradition, with a new healthy tradition. And so for me, it was bibliotherapy. For a good solid year, almost every night, around 5.30, 6, 6.37, something like that, whenever I got done with whatever my responsibilities were for the day, I would sit in a comfy chair and I would read. And about two-thirds or three-quarters of the time, I would read memoir, the stories of other alcoholics who had come before me. Um, Caroline Knapp's Drinking a Love Story is at the top of my list. Sarah Heppel's Blackout is right there with it. Uh, Dry by Augustin Burroughs, just, just to name three really great uh, memoirs about alcoholism and recovery and I really connected with those people because they had the same affliction I had and they had succeeded they had found sobriety and so it wasn't just about not drinking at six o'clock at night it was about doing something different a lot of people get into exercise maybe that's when you go for a run or a bike ride is is during your witching hour when you normally would be drinking um, there's no shortage of activities hobbies you know, maybe things that you did when, when you were younger that you've gotten, gotten away from uh, that you want to take back up. But you can't just let that period sit unaddressed. You have to do something with that period, fill that void. And like I said, Annie in, in This Naked Mind, just she taught a lot about the power of the subconscious mind. One of the things that you and I have learned about it that I think is really fascinating is this kind of calendar effect. So I could go, let's say I went three months where every evening in the evening I read and that helped me get over the cravings and I didn't have anything to drink for three months. And and Saturdays and Sundays when I would drink more heavily, I would drink beer during the day before I drank cocktails at night. Um, I could go through those sober because I was doing different activities and I was exercising and and just I was filling that space when I normally would be drinking with other things. That's all great, but it gives us a false sense of confidence like, oh, I'm sober now. It's been three months. What we, the calendar effect, what I mean by that is there, you know, the changing seasons, we're about to change into not so much fall, but this is literally uh, when this podcast is released. It'll be the Monday after the first weekend of college football. I think college football starts this weekend. Are you looking at me to validate that? Because yeah, does college I football no start this weekend? I have no idea. Uh, and NFL uh, preseason starts this Didn't weekend. Didn't that start like or three months ago? I mean, something. my God. I like, does it ever end? But Until the I'm point not a football is, fan. <laughs> for a lot of people, football is a huge drinking trigger. Yes, well, because it's advertised consistently, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. Tailgating, all that. Yeah, well, just, you know, fall, put on a sweatshirt, go play touch football with your buddies, have some beers. I'm thinking back to college days, like, 
there's just so much association between alcohol and football. Yes, college days you could wear a sweatshirt in the fall. Here in Colorado, you can't wear a sweatshirt in the fall because well, there is no still, fall anymore. It's just still just summer. summer and then snow but for a while think... and then more summer. <laughs> yeah, but but the point is, as the calendar turns, that three months of sobriety that you might be real proud of, you've never done that. During football season. Well, You've never have, done that during Halloween. You've never done that during Thanksgiving. I have a little confession. Yes. And I don't even know if I've like ever said that on any of our podcasts. But when you were a drinker and we had fall, there was a little like little cocktail that I would make in the fall that had apple cider and a white wine and mm-hmm. it had cinnamon in it and it was like a little mold cider. Yeah. And I always kind of was like, ooh, I look forward to that. Now, I would only make just enough for me because you would, of course, just be gluttonous and just drink way too much. And I think it had, like, um, Captain Morgan's, like, spiced rum or something. So I would buy literally just the small, like, airplane bottle or two. You'd be like, why are you buying these? You could get a whole... Yeah, I can't get a whole bottle because it'd be gone. Yeah. Like, so I would just get singles, but... I kind of, like, that was one thing when you were, like, talking about the fall yeah. and the transitioning. And I remember, like, sharing that cocktail recipe and bringing it to a party. And everybody's like, oh, it's so good. I'm like, yes, it is. Like, I just thought of that. I'm like, yeah, I haven't thought about that for years until you started talking about fall. And, well, you know, then that seasonal thing, like, you're like, oh, but I really liked that drink during the the season, you know, and... It's a seasonal association. It makes yeah. a ton of sense. Look, it makes a economic sense as well. If if they could, like, do you think Starbucks only brings back the pumpkin spice latte and does it for three months of the year? Because, um, you know, th- there's only one reason they do it that way. It's because it wouldn't sell in July and it wouldn't sell in May and March. And... They create a buzz around it, and then they sell the shit out of it for a few months in the fall. Yeah, but they start it way too early, and so everybody's jumped on board. I just saw my first pumpkin product at the grocery store the other day, and I went, bleh. Here we are, early mid-August. I wanted to kick the whole table of the pumpkin crap and be like, get out of here. Well, yes, everything creeps forward, and I know that you hate the end of summer, but well, I also. But the point the is that, but yes. that you're right. You, well, you don't have to be an alcoholic to have an association between flavors and... If, and things you do and the changing of the calendar. And that's exactly the point. You can have three months of sobriety and then hit some new place in the calendar and whatever you associate with that place in the calendar, guess what? That thing is going to be knocking on your door. Yeah. Whether you like it or not. And so when we talk about the subconscious mind, it isn't just the routine. It isn't just replacing my witching hour drinking habit with something else. It's about getting ready for the changing of the seasons, the different holidays, and the different, you know, I I mean, a crap ton of Irish whiskey gets sold in March, right? Probably, I'm going to guess, probably some crazy number, 10 times as much Irish whiskey gets sold in March than the whole other 11 months combined. Yes, uh, that is not factual. I'm just, but you understand the point, right? Yeah, more Irish whiskey probably is sold. Probably more Guinness, probably more Harp. More. You know, a lot more gets yeah. sold, yes, in in the weeks around St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. For sure. I mean, that's why eggnog starts like, coming out in October now. So that's why for me, you know, after 10 years of failed attempts at sobriety and lots of extended relapses, 
the solution, one part of the solution for me was to take that calendar and go through every event that was coming up and thinking, really thinking about it and crossing them all off my list of doable events, except for, I think there were two things that I didn't cross off. We have for, we, for many years gone to the Indianapolis 500 with the same group of friends. The tickets are really expensive. We had already paid for them. Um, so I white knuckled my way through the Indy 500. Also, it's because it's our trip to see my family. So. Yeah, and our also our summer vacation with my family. So for my first full successful year of sobriety, those are the only two social things we did, and that shocks a lot of people. And I know as the loved ones of an alcoholic, you might that might just enrage you to think, "Are you kidding me? I'm not the one with the drinking problem, and I got to cross all these things off my social calendar just to be supportive of this drinking spouse." Well. I guess that's a decision that everyone's got to make for themselves. But I'll give the I'll give the partner that's the I I didn't I mean I didn't I didn't go out a lot with my friends yeah. I didn't go out drinking because like, I was done with drinking but I still like like we still went to church I still engage with my friends um, occasionally for coffee or whatever and maybe like a movie here and there but I never did a lot of that anyhow because I was always home like worried about what was going to happen with you in a lot of ways if it was the weekend I really hated going out because it gave you greater anxiety and stress and it frustrated you when I would go out with my friends like because you would have to wait for me to get home and, and that is and so I had already kind of already been in that place and I've looked at it like this, this is just a sacrifice I mean, I already started cutting things out of our calendar long before that I would be invited to, that I would get the email and see, or see the invitation for, and I didn't want to go put up with your bullshit. So I never never told you even some of the things that we were included in. Well, the sacrifice that you made is completely unfair. I'll be the first to admit it. When you avoided social occasions because I was in early sobriety, that's bullshit. That's another way in which the spouse gets kind of used and abused and is second fiddle. But it was hugely beneficial for us in the long term. So this goes back to the point of this stuff takes a year, a year plus. Are you willing to make the commitment? Is that a terrifying concept? The Now, you and I can go to any social occasion. It can be totally booze fest. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother you. It doesn't tempt either of us to drink. If anything, just being around drunks is annoying. But there's no temptation and I attribute a lot of that, us getting to the point that we are now, to that year that we took off from social events. And right. so it sucks. It sucks that you had to be a part of that. But, you but also- if you had gone out and partied and come home when I was weak, weak sobriety muscles, new in sobriety, whether I said, that's fine, Sherry, you're not the one with the drinking problem or not, that would have crushed me inside. Yeah. Well, and we had already had lots of attempts at us doing things and you just tried to pretend that you were still you know drinking so we we had lots of experience backing this up Mm -hmm. failed attempts we would be walking into a party and like i can't handle it i'm gonna drink and i'd be like what the hell we're at the threshold of the party yeah you know or you would can be at the barbecue for five minutes and you come over i'm gonna drink because i can't just handle the pressure or i get through the event and i drink a couple days later because that's some weird shame residual response. Yeah. It's very common. So this wasn't like we just decided, oh, one year, we're going to take everything out. I mean, this was trial and error, trial right. and error, trial and error. A decade of failure. So this so is just a... So hopefully people can learn from us and they don't have to go through their own decade of failure. Yeah. 
because 10 years is more than a year. I don't know if you know that, but a, a rough year is way better than 10 bad years and then one rough year. That's a fact. Ten That's a fact. That's an alcohol more, fact. Is, 10 years is more than one That's year. more factual than the increase in, the... in uh, Irish whiskey sales that I just pulled out of my ass earlier. Yeah. Which is probably close to true, but it was totally a guess. <laughs> No, this you're is just basing it on, more than you're years. basing it on your purchases, and then also you probably. Have, I know a liquor distributor. I've talked through this stuff before. I know. I know I'm directionally correct. Yes. The next thing I want to we want to talk about. So those two neurotransmitters, subconscious mind, that's stuff that you and I have known. We learned about five six years ago. We've been preaching it for a while. We're very confident in in uh, talking about those things. The, the next two things I want to talk about are kind of newish to us. Um, the, the Last year, last summer, so roughly a year ago, a little more than a year ago, a new book was released called Dopamine Nation. And it was authored by Dr. Anna Lemke. And it really hits home how important it is to understand this equilibrium piece and our brain's effort to be in equilibrium, to be, think of a, a seesaw, a teeter-totter. Wants to be flat, doesn't want to be up, doesn't want to be down. Wants to be flat. And our brain wants that in basically all aspects of life. And so, when we have big ups, when we have really glorious moments and things that make us feel great, there is a big down coming in almost every case. I have heard lots of interviews uh, I just recently heard a podcast with John Bon Jovi talking about this, I believe. But I've heard lots of uh, podcasts or interviews with uh, celebrities who talk about being on stage. This was a big thing for Robin Williams as well. When you're in front of the audience and you're just thriving off the audience and getting all your mojo and feeling great, and it's a super big high. Not alcohol high, not drug high, just in the moment. And then an hour later, you're in your hotel room alone and it's like this dark place that you go to. That's the backside of the high. If you go up, you got to come down. And so our brain wants to be at equilibrium. If we avoid the big, 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 big highs, then we don't have to suffer the big, 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 big lows. And like I said, Dr. Lemke, she talks about that in her Dopamine Nation book about everything. It isn't specifically about alcohol. It's about, she talks about kids and what we need to worry about with technology addiction. And and just you and she's one of the people that I have heard multiple times talk about how you can get addicted to anything. So there is so much benefit to kind of stay in happily in the middle, not trying to get, you know, super high end highs um, because the super back end lows are coming. Have you experienced any of this in your life? I know we've We've laughed about the fact that I've tried and tried and tried to figure out what you're addicted to and I can't come up with anything other than cat petting, I guess. And I don't even like that because sometimes that's hairy. <sighs> I think I'm too much of a pessimist to like, I don't know. I I know that oftentimes early in our relationship, you would be really frustrated that I wouldn't be like so super excited about something. So, you know. Oh, isn't this the best? Oh, don't you just oh, love yeah. it? I get you, all you would, fired up. Yeah, and then you just didn't understand why I just didn't. And I thought that was and a weakness not, you had. And it's not because I don't enjoy it. Like, I thought we had a great time on a vacation once. Like, this was kind of early sobriety for you. And 
you know, we got back from the vacation and I was like, this was such a great vacation. Like, really? Because you didn't look like you were having a good time. I'm like, just because I wasn't hanging off at the edge of the Grand Canyon because I don't like heights. But, you know, because I would say, oh, I was worried about the rain or whatever didn't mean that I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. So there was always that level of frustration that I was more moderate. Like, I also know that I can be sad about something, but I don't feel like I curl up in a ball on the bed. Inconsolable. Yeah. Like I used to. Right. So... So I always thought of this as a weakness that you're, you don't, God, you don't, nothing gets you all fired up. It's actually a great thing. Yeah. I mean, and I guess like, even though I wouldn't say that our vacation, um, this summer was perfect by any means. I mean, there was still some little bit of things, challenges we had to deal with when we went away to an island, which this was a big treat for us. Once in a lifetime kind of thing. Yeah. But I, so, but I still like, I'll think about that. I think that's one of the, and it's not like I didn't think about it during childbirth. You know, I do love the children and everything. And it is amazing how the brain works that you don't remember the pain of childbirth, even if you have a natural one, you know, those were highlights, you know, but I I don't know. I just feel like I, well, I, I think, feel like for me, my brain just wants to stay that way, and so I feel like I'm pretty moderate. Well, I everybody's get brain off wants to stay that way. You just give in to that desire to stay kind of even keel to your considerable benefit. The only thing is I get a little worked up about things more, you know, like that aggravate me, but then I just have to mouth to you about it, and then I'm like over it. Yeah, or, you're, you're or pretty even keel, and that's a... kid off at the parade when he douses me. No, I didn't flip him off. I wish I would have, but, you know, that would have just made me look bad. But when people talk about being adrenaline junkies, you know, I used to be like, ooh, that would be cool to want to, like, you know, put on one of those flying monkey suits and jump off a canyon wall and, and wow, those guys are so much braver than I am. And now I'm like, no, because they got, they they have to have the downside that Dr. Lemke taught taught us about. So when we... When we take this kind of new learning about the importance of equilibrium and how the brain is constantly trying to find equilibrium, and we overlay that with what we've already learned about neurotransmitters, it just kind of takes the story another step. And I think it's fascinating. That's why I say this brain chemistry stuff is the final frontier. We're still constantly learning stuff about it. And and that is that is interesting, but it's also very scary that when you think about someone in early recovery and then trying to find something that they could do during that witching hour... That can easily turn to another addiction well, and transfer exactly. your addiction. That's why this all stuff is all intertwined. You're right. Or if you see in little kids or younger kids or teenagers, like you mentioned, the technology, how how they can get lost in gaming and they can't even imagine what it's like to do it for an hour. Like, yeah. That's our youngest time limit. Yep. And he can't even imagine what it's like to be in an hour because I bet if we left him into his own accord, he would just be doing it for the whole day because he yeah. wouldn't have any idea. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the addiction transference. There has long in the recovery community been this concept that as long as the new addiction is less bad than the old addiction, that that's a good thing. What do they call that? Um, addiction transference or... Uh, no, there's a there's a term. Yeah. I know. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Too bad yeah, me too. Um, well, maybe we'll come up with it. But... I'm, I'm here to say that what we've learned from these scientists is that it's not actually a good thing to transfer the addiction to something else because the neurotransmitters remain hijacked. They're just hijacked by something else. Yeah. And so maybe there's not as much outward chaos. You know, a, a great example is 
people will go from alcohol to marijuana and instead of turning into a fiery rageaholic, they become a lump on the couch. So they don't disrupt the family as much. They're not causing all these relationship issues or at least it's different relationship issues. So maybe outwardly that seems better, but the brain chemistry stuff's exactly the same. So it's not, it's not better to do harm reduction. That's the Harm reduction. That's the word. Yes. Yeah. It was right there. Uh, uh, but, outwardly better, but not inwardly well, better. And that's Not what neurologically better. I've wondered, like, I wondered if, um, if you had decided to do something that was more stimulating for your witching hour thing. Rather than read. Rather quietly. than read quietly and be over there in your own little sad corner. <laughs> sad corner of the living room. <laughs> but... Maybe something that is giving you more, you know, charge, more exciting, more flash, more, you know, maybe it's you spread it out. You do something a little, you know, you don't go on a run. Yeah. You go on a walk one day or you try, you know, something more with your hands, but it's not a gaming like a joystick or I don't think they're joysticks, but, you know, gaming controller. Yeah. Thing, you know, something that's not making you escape it necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. And I was just going to say, because we've seen lots of people that go overboard with running or fitness after they have gotten into the recovery side of it, which there's nothing wrong with healing and being better and being a healthier person. But you got to balance that a little bit and spread it out and do maybe different things so you're not just addicted to one thing. But The things that we most often run into with the people that we work with are shopping, transference to shopping. Um, and this is men and women. This isn't, you know, I say shopping and people assume, oh, the, the women all, no, it's actually mostly the men who develop shopping addictions. Um, they were either co-occurring with the alcoholism or they become the thing that when the person stops drinking, they transfer to porn is really common. It's less talked about. Um, but, and then video games is big, big, big for for people that we know that are uh, in early sobriety from alcohol. And if you're the loved one of an alcoholic, if you're the spouse, this is really important because I feel like a lot of spouses have kind of a yeah, but attitude to the secondary addiction. So they'll say, oh, you know, we are two years sober from alcohol, but my loved one is still exhibiting these um, characteristics that show that there's no recovery taking place. And yeah, yeah, but they've got this secondary addiction. Yeah, they've got this shopping addiction. Or yeah, every time things get stressful, they go down in the basement and play video games. But we're two years sober from alcohol, so why is this still happening? And I'm here to say... I don't know why I keep saying that. I hate that saying. I keep saying I'm here to say. Um, the, the video game addiction is neurologically the same as the alcohol addiction. So you're not two years sober. You're two years dry from alcohol, but there's no recovery taking place. So when the spouses kind of yab up that, yes, I know that this shopping addiction is a big deal, but it doesn't cause the chaos and calamity that the alcohol did. So to your bank statement. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, you know, this I'm not coming home hand. to, you know, a raging alcoholic who's disrupting my family time and my, and my kids are afraid and all He's this because that's not happening things are better okay that part's better but your person isn't getting healthy right and i just i feel like we we hear a lot of does do you understand what i'm saying when i right. hear yeah but yeah 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know it. that this other addiction but still exists. But why isn't he getting better? Harm well, it's because of that other addiction. Yeah, harm reduction. That transferring of that addiction, and you still have those addictive behaviors. You can't really call out on it. You can't really, because you know, if you're blaming the alcohol, as we've asked people to do, blame the alcohol. Well, the alcohol is removed, but the actions are still there, and the yeah. behaviors are still there. You know, they've harm reduced their addiction, but by transferring it, you know. Yeah. Like I know that shopping and and gambling and even like playing in the stock market it gives people a rush. You mm-hmm. know, those I think could also cause different sets of conversations and so at least it's not alcohol, but it's financial and it's still disruptive to your financial security and future. So they're thinking, "Oh, but it's not alcohol." Yeah. Take we're not, you know, with alcohol was a cost. You know, if there were DUIs and lawyers involved and well, the cost of spending. Well, there's just so much outward calamity, but, right? Yeah. There's so the much. The behavior and the actions, yeah. you know. Yeah. But there's also that mistrust and deviance. Yeah. And, and not being real with your feelings. We've just got to recognize that there's outward and that there's inward. And the inward specifically that we're talking about here is the brain. And even if the outward's better, I mean, like, okay... You get addicted to exercise. Great. My loved one goes on 10-mile runs every day. That's two and a half hours I don't see him. Or two hours I don't see him or whatever. So it's really hard to be disruptive to the family when you're not there. That's way better than two and a half hours of being drunk and storming around the house or being depressed. Right. So it feels better. But neurologically, it's not. I think that's important for us all. And listen, I had secondary addictions. Uh, I had... I. I, sometimes I get chastised when I call it a sex addiction because I never w- went outside the marriage. But and you didn't I, watch porn or anything, but... But I wanted sex a lot. I wanted that, that neurotransmitter hit Yeah. from from sex a lot from one of those in early form, sobriety. One of those serotonins, dopamine one of things. Those, one of those Maybe things. all four of them. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... And and workaholism is a real transference that I think clearing I've continued your, to deal yeah. with. And I think, like, if you have a daily list of what you want to get accomplished and if you don't clear it up and you would push on through the evening, it just that gratitude. It was self Yeah, I would gratitude. get a huge hit when I crossed a bunch of things off my list. Yeah. Or... You know what I do? I just add things to lists that I've already done so I can cross them off and I feel good. Maybe that's how you keep yeah. <laughs> balanced. Just, yes. <laughs> I used to think you were a mess. When it comes to organization, and now I'm a bit jealous of you because you don't you don't get this high or low based on what you did or did not accomplish in the course of a day. It's good. Yeah. You're you're healthier than I am. Uh, the next little piece about brain chemistry that is also you know kind of new to us. Um, we just recently saw someone in one of our programs was kind enough to sh- to share present to our group. A number of things. One of them was the brain scans of people same age, but one uh, had an alcohol addiction and the other didn't. And um, so, like brain imagery, this kind of thing. This is again relatively on the final frontier, kind of new stuff. And we can see that in the brain scan of someone with an alcohol addiction, the the brain material the the gray matter is like shrunk. It's like shriveled. Yeah. And, then and there's there all kinds black of gaps. Holes yeah. In it. Yes. And that, I mean, that happens with 
any sort of brain injuries or, um, you know, mental illness sometimes that shows up is because things are, are not working properly. Yeah. But the, but the addiction and the alcoholism really... But it's it, shocking. It is. But again, good news here, for the most part, because of neuroplasticity, because our brain wants to heal. Um, if we get away from alcohol on a consistent long-term basis, the brain can, for lack of a better term, puff back out and fill in those gaps and get healthy again. Now, can you drink too much, too long, too far to the point where there's permanent brain damage? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A lot of that relates to the liver. I'm going to get I'm not going to go much further because I don't want to get into an area that I'm not comfortable. Um, I'm happy to make up statistics about uh, Irish whiskey sales, but I'm not happy to make up stuff about the brain. But I know that when we damage our liver function to the point where, you know, the liver is basically a big filter, right? And when it can't filter the toxins that we put in our body, alcohol and otherwise, then those toxins or some form of those toxins gets into our bloodstream, goes up into our brain. And so mm-hmm. like ammonia um, is one of the things that can go to our brain and cause permanent brain damage Yeah, that you can't neuroplasticity your, your way out of. Well, I mean, just think about how we have like, in general, there's that joke about stoners, you know, how they're, yeah. so, well, you've damaged your brain. Yeah. You know, it's just plain and simple. You drink too much, you damage your brain, and some of it can't come back. It's just real simple. Yeah. So there's just some... like your lungs. I mean, yeah, you've damaged your lungs by smoking. I mean, and that's the kind of the nice thing about alcoholism is if it's not too far gone, a lot of your brain can heal itself. Where lungs, you don't have that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you and I smoked in college. I think that was a long enough time ago that we're probably we probably got some pretty healthy lung yeah. tissue going on. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, but 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 yeah. With with anything, there is a line you cross where the damage becomes permanent. Um, but the body is a beautiful, like really impressive organism in that there is a lot of repair available, and certainly that's the case with a lot of what happens um, brain wise. It it a lot of it can be repaired, but you can do permanent damage um, if you go too far. The last piece of the five ways alcohol impacts brain chemistry that we want to talk about today, Sherry, is actually about you. It's about the spouses. And it's about the nervous system of the spouse. When you are in an alcoholic relationship, you spend way more time than you should at a, in a heightened state of awareness, in kind of fight or flight mode, because you never know what to expect from your alcoholic spouse. When they come home, you're listening for signs that they've been drinking. You're, when they're not there, you're searching the house for empty bottles. Um, you are afraid of how they're going to interact with the kids. You're afraid of what they're going to say to a neighbor. Uh, you're, you are spending extra time keeping up appearances, so cleaning and making sure the house is always perfect because you don't want anyone to know what's really going on on the inside. So you've got all these kind of pretenses that you're living under. And that nervous system dysregulation, being constantly in fight or flight or under stress, is really, really bad. And it is it definitely falls into this category of how your brain chemistry changes because we have seen so many people 
that once they are removed from the alcoholic situation, either because their loved one stops drinking or because through mostly through divorce, right? They are separated from that person. It takes some time to get that nervous system back into a more normal functioning area. Like a lot of time. I'm not going to say a year. I guess I don't know exactly how long, but it's not a, a quick and dirty. It, it takes time. And we know that this has, this isn't just, you know, brain stuff. This isn't just neurological impact. The neurological stuff has an impact on our bodies. So it, it does damage to us. Um, I, you've had a, you know, chronic cough for a long time. And I have for a long time said that I think it's psychosomatic, that I think it is somehow related to the stress that you were under when I was drinking and when I was in early sobriety. And um, I don't know, jury's still out on that, I guess. But do you do you buy into the fact that the stress that you're under does damage to the physical part of your body uh, as well as the emotional I part? I do buy into the fact that stress causes damage to the body. Long, long amounts of stress. I know that short spurts of stress are totally fine, but under a chronic long-term, like with any of the inflammatory diseases, autoimmune diseases, I think a lot of those are because of stress. And I have examples in my life, friends and family that I've seen under great amount of stress due to alcoholism mm-hmm. and it has changed their body and they deal with issues. Cardiovascular issues, not just, I'm not just talking about your family, yeah. but I'm talking about people that we know uh, certainly heart issues, um, digestive issues, digestive tract issues, sleep. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, 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 it's fascinating how poisonous alcohol is, not just to the person who's consuming it, but to the person that's around them. Mm-hmm. Um, when this, when the nervous system gets out of whack, all kinds of bad things can happen. Physical ailments, joints that just don't work. And you're right. It has a lot to do with inflammation. Um, but it starts with the brain. It starts with that nervous system. It starts with constantly being on high alert. It's one thing that's really been interesting to me as we as we meet people and we, we hear their stories. Because I never went away to like a 30-day inpatient, we hear how when a spouse's loved one is at a 30-day or 60-day inpatient rehab, how they sleep for the first time literally in years. They sleep soundly for the first time in years. They can get eight hours of sleep because their spouse is safely locked away in this institution where they're being treated and there's no chance that they're going to wake them up in the middle of the night and want to have sex. There's no chance that they're going to go pee in the underwear drawer or pee in the bed. There's no chance that they're going to wake up the kids in the middle of the night. So rather than sitting there on high alert, laying there, pretending to sleep or trying to sleep, you can actually sleep soundly. I think that's fascinating. Well, and also when you realize how much sleep is restorative if you're not getting the good kind of sleep for healing. Yes. So you're never getting to that REM sleep. You're never getting to that restorative sleep. Yeah. So that... So those physical ailments... Just like the alcoholic never gets to that stage because they're processing the alcohol, so they're not getting the sleep they need. Yeah. Maybe why alcoholics need a lot more sleep in their first few months of sobriety. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think there is the body keeps score has a lot to be said for. 
Yeah, that's that. That's I was listing authors and books earlier and smart people. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score is another. It's another good book. I can't think of the author off the top of my head. I can't either. But that's another good book uh, to check out, and it's all about this when we're in elevated stress situations for an extended period of time, under duress, living in chaos. Uh, it's going to hurt our bodies for sure. So it's it's not just the alcoholic. It's anyone who is in constant or or frequent um, exposure to the alcoholic who can have neurological impacts and that the neurological stuff can impact the physical as well. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Thanks for talking through. Some of this was old. Some of this is relatively new. It's uh, never... Not, I mean, it's always important to keep hearing it again. Yeah. Well, I like sometimes to keep you learning, just, and when I learn something, I want to tell people what I right. learned. Right, and then also it's just a good reminder to have, because sometimes we put it in the back of our mind, we don't think about it, like that transferring of addiction, and how you really can't say that you're in recovery if you're doing something in an addictive fashion Yeah. whenever you have those stress trigger points. Yeah, absolutely. So I can't believe I described an adrenaline junkie as someone who wants to jump off of a canyon with a monkey suit. Where did monkey suit? I I think you know. I think they I call think them like flying, flying squirrel. squirrel. Yeah, I, know. I was just like whatever. I'm flying monkeys are just Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. There's nothing addictive about Wizard of Oz. I don't think. No, flying monkeys. God. Flying squirrels. Flying squirrels. Okay. Well, let's start over, and we'll do it right the next time. <laughs> we'll talk about flying squirrels. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.